0: Well, good morning brother martin thank you very much it's very encouraging good time to pray and i uh did not have the privilege of hearing uh brother rob and uh brother paul when they spoke in the morning my tardiness somebody asked me the other day if i could ever be on time for anything and i'm usually late but uh i'm sure your words were encouraging i'll look forward to hearing those and um I'm thankful uh, for the week. It's been a blessing. We've had a wonderful preaching. Thank you, Corey. And uh, I don't know how I preached when I was 19, but uh, is that about how old you are, brother? And uh, man, to preach like that as a young man, and uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful encouragement, uh, pointing us to the Lord Jesus. And uh, last night was... Uh, was a blessing. Who needs Dolzal? We have Chuck. And, uh, and I just went home last night and tore up my PhD. So I thought, uh, but, uh, what a, what a, what a great, what a great encouragement. What a great word. And, um, well, I, uh, I have spent most of my time over the last several years in, uh, the study of history, uh, studying 18th century particular Baptists in England. That's kind of my little area that I like to, like to study. So um, <clears throat> I've thought much about Brett going over to England there and uh, think often on he and Shelley and their, their new opportunity they have in the Manchester area. We're praying for them and uh, very excited about that. One of the things that drew me to the 18th century was kind of the the view that is commonly presented about 18th century particular Baptists, uh, that these were days of high, or as it's often more pejoratively referred to as hyper-Calvinism, that all of our particular Baptist forefathers in those days were just kind of dead and uninterested in the gospel, and... Uh, they were all waiting for Andrew Fuller to ride in on his white horse at the end of the ni- 18th century and just kind of save the day and send Carrie to India. And that's when everything kind of became, became good and, and uh, joyful again. Um, <clears throat> my study of this period has led me to different convictions. Um, surely there were high or hyper-Calvinists in the day, uh, but there is also a great heritage of evangelically minded, mission minded, particular Baptists in this day and age. And I have had the joy of just being able to kind of uncover some of that for myself. And I cherish opportunities to be able uh, to speak about it. Uh, my church, unfortunately, probably gets to hear about Benjamin Bedham all the time and, uh, That's what we're going to hear about again today. And I would like to introduce you today, uh, not so much to Bedham as a man and his life, like a biography. I want to look at Bedham as an example, if you will, of an evangelical minister. What would be said of us at the end of our lives that we could look back on our lives? Would there be evidence, if you will? Would there be enough testimony to glean Uh, to show that we indeed gave our lives for the cause of the gospel of Christ. So with that in mind, I want to present to you the evangelical ministry of Benjamin Bedham. The narrative of Benjamin Bedham's ministry begins at its end in his obituary, penned by fellow Baptist John Rippon, who considered the labors of this good man among his charge, as unremitted and evangelical. Bedham came to a little town, a village in the Midlands of England, known as Borton-on-the-Water, in 1740. Ordained and called as the church's pastor in 1743, remained as pastor until his death, September 3rd, 1795. This was Bedham's sole charge, spending the remainder of his days in what is referred to by some as village retirement. Bedham is the picture of faithful, persevering, provincial ministry. However, though, in the country, Bedham was ever in the know. Robert Hall, Jr., one of his biographers, one of his friends, said of him that Mr. Bedham was on many accounts an extraordinary person, his mind was cast in an original mold. His conceptions on every subject were eminently his own. And where the stamina of his thoughts were the same as other men's, a peculiarity marked the mode of their exhibition. Favored with the advantage of a learned education, he continued to the last to cultivate an acquaintance with the best writers of antiquity, to which he was much indebted for the chaste, terse, and nervous diction which distinguished his composition both in prose and verse. Though he spent the principal part of a long life in a village retirement, he was eminent for his colloquial powers in which he displayed the urbanity of the gentleman and the erudition of the scholar combined with a more copious vein of attic salt than any person it had been my lot to know. With a brilliant mind and a sound evangelical education, a well-rounded literary palate and skillful prose, all coupled together with a heart for Christ, Bedham was amply supplied with gifts, useful for a life of ministry among God's flock. He had a reputation, according to Hall, for powerful yet refined speech, gentle manners of sophistication, scholarly intellect, and a charming wit." It is no wonder that Thomas Brooks, who was the pastor of the Borton Church in the next century, writing a history of the church, looked back on the days of Bedham and referred to Bedham as that eminent man. Several helpful sketches of Bedham's life and labor have been written since his death right up to the present day. Most of these tell primarily a chronological narrative of his life taking the reader from the time that Bedham was born, or just prior to it, to the time of his death. And while this is a legitimate way, a fully legitimate way, an even helpful manner in which to tell a narrative of someone's life, a different approach is intended here. Presently, we seek to highlight Bedham's evangelical commitments in relation to his ministry in Borton. Stepping back and looking over the landscape of Bedham's unremitted 55-year ministry in Borton. John Rippon summarizes his work in this country scene as evangelical. How so? How do Bedham's ministerial labors reflect his evangelical commitments? Well, to answer this question, six considerations are presented here. First, it wasn't long after Bedham's arrival during the time of his ministerial probation prior to his ordination that Bedham tasted the fruits of the evangelical revival in Borton itself. An experience of revival work in Borton gave Bedham early exposure to an event seen by many as ultimately transformative to the ecclesial landscape in Britain and the world. Second, Bedham early on and throughout his ministry established and maintained ministerial intimacy with revival men. If Aesop's old adage is true that a man is known by the company that he keeps, then Bedham's evangelicalism is clear. At this point, examination will be made of a relationship Bedham forged with one known evangelical leader, which actually served to connect him to a wide variety of other evangelical men. Third, and closer to home in the Borton Church, attention will be paid to Bedham's views on conversion. David Bevington, a noted historian of evangelicalism, marked conversion as one of the distinguishing marks of what we consider evangelicalism. And this mark clearly stands front and center in the ministry of Benjamin Bedham. Through a culling of the Borton church books where Bedham records conversion narratives, a picture begins to emerge of Bedham's commitment to and understanding of this prominent doctrine in revival circles. Fourth, Bedham's evangelical labors outside of Borton among the churches of England, and specifically within the context of the Midland Baptist Association, needs to be considered. Bedham was a useful minister "...amongst the Midland Baptists." And special attention here will be given to the evangelical bent of the association itself in which Bedham served. Fifth, Bedham, as evidence of Bristol training, was committed to the calling out, equipping of, and setting apart of what they would refer to as able ministers of the New Testament. Under Bedham's labors, several men were set apart for ministry... And special attention here will be given to the setting apart of a man by the name of Nathaniel Rawlins, who was converted and set apart under Bedham, first coming amongst them. Excuse me, set apart under Bedham. Finally, a piece of evidence supporting the lectures or this lecture's conclusion regarding Bedham's evangelical conviction is observed from an event which, when we first view it, will appear to point in a contradictory conclusion. Some of you will recall, toward the close of the 18th century, there is a mission society formed known as the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792 that sent William Carey to India in 1794. All responses to the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society were not positive. In fact, many were negative and not supportive. Bedham's motivations for being among a group of those who withheld their sanction from the society will be considered in order to demonstrate not his anti-evangelical views, but rather his evangelical views. So let's consider these items. Bedham's experience of the revival in Borton. According to Bedham, upon his arrival in Borton on the water, the state of the work in the church had been for a long time before unsettled and divided. The state of the church was mentioned by Bedham in a letter he wrote in 1750 to the church at Goodman's Fields upon the death of their and his previous pastor, Samuel Wilson. In his response, Bedham wrote that though they used to be unsettled, it was now no longer so. Rather, now the state of the church could be described by Bedham as harmonious and united. From 1740, Bedham's arrival, unsettled and divided. To 1750, Bedham's description, harmonious and united. What made the difference? Regarding the ministry in Borton, Bedham says this, My labors have been and are still in a measure blessed unto now more than a hundred having been added since my first coming amongst them. Now add to this the fact that the population of Borton at the time was only a few hundred people, and the numbers appear to be rather significant. When Better arrived at the church in 1740, it was running about 100 souls in membership. But over the course of the following years, there was numerical growth in the congregation, and many of these were added during a small window of time in the early 1740s. Historian Michael Haken notes that a local revival took place under Bedham's ministry in the early months of 1741, in which around 40 individuals were converted. William Newman, in an 1835 biography of a man by the name of John Colette Ryland, who was one of those converted under Bedham's ministry during that time in the early 40s, confirms Haken's comment, adding that these 40 persons were brought to repentance at that same time. Upon conferring with the Borton Burton Church book, these accounts on the whole are confirmed. A time period under consideration stretches from May 1741 to near the end of 1742. And it is likely that Newman's account is accurate and pictures these coming to an express faith in Christ early in 1741 and being examined, heard, baptized, and received into membership over the course of their following months. Interestingly, it was during this time that Roger Hayden notes that Bedham was most likely, or Bedham most likely made contact with Jonathan Edwards. At this particular point in time in Bedham's ministry, he had obtained a copy of Edwards' book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Now, that might not sound interesting to you or odd to you because we have Amazon. You know, and we have the proliferation of lots of books. There were probably not many copies of this book in England at that time, and Bedham may have actually had the first. Well, in consideration of this work, Michael McClymond and Gerald McDermott, who have recently written a work on the theology of Jonathan Edwards... Note that because of Satan's opposition and human error, great care must be taken in discerning whether or not a movement is of the Spirit or not. And Betham would have been concerned with this. If you had a hundred members in your church, and all of a sudden, within a few weeks of one another, 41 people came to Christ, you might wonder what was going on. Bedham not wanting to be deceived and seeing this as a work of God upon his congregation would have eagerly received such a work as Edwards's. As will be observed later, great care was given by this pastor to ensure that every conversion narrative was examined and authenticated before allowing them to be baptized and received into the church. Haken again notes that this revival in Borton was quite significant for the shape of Bedham's long ministry at the church. Having received from Edwards a sure foundation for thinking about and laboring for revival, Bedham was set on an awakening course for the remainder of his days in the country. This was not to be the last time that Bedham in his village congregation would experience God's quickening and enlivening and comforting presence in their midst. In fact, that description is that of Bedham himself describing the work of God among them in the mid-1760s when he wrote, God once smiled upon us and we sensibly experienced his quickening, enlivening, and comforting presence. Bedham's statements come from his letter to the association itself in 1786, recounting former days of blessing in 1763, 1764, In 1766, when the church was showered with God's mercy, reaching a high point in membership under Bedham's ministry and having to build an addition to their facility. During these years, Bedham writes that some 43 members were added to our community. At the present moment in 1786, when he wrote that letter, reflecting back on an earlier time, those previous 20 years, back to the mid-60s, Bedham says had been the church had been upon the decline. It is clear from the opening lines of the 1786 Association letter that Bedham had been sobered, stating that our harps still hang upon the willows for the God who once smiled upon us. Bedham feeling like one of the Hebrew exiles sitting by the waters of Babylon, weeping for and remembering Zion, feeling as if in a foreign land. Only once in the previous five years, had the ordinance of baptism even been administered in Borton. Though this was a very discouraging time for Bedham and the church, in characteristic revival fashion, Bedham's hopes are clearly in the Lord to send his spirit upon his church. He writes in this letter, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon our yard that the spices... May flow out. It should be further noted that following this period of declension, the church did experience yet another visitation from the Lord between the years of 1786 and 1789, in which time there were seventeen additions to the church through conversion. However, these days were not like the fullness of the days before. Overall, the first decades of ministry in Borton for Bedham were the brightest and the remaining three were filled with much difficulty and much sorrow. One final mention of reviving work in Borton should be mentioned, and this occurred during the year of 1754. In Bedham's association letter in 1755, things seemed dark. He wrote this, As to our present state, we have many things to complain, of which we hope. We daily complain, beloved. The shadows of the evening are stretched over us coldness and indifference in spiritual things too much prevail yet we have a little strength well this is a foreboding report and when one looks in the historical documents of the church it is somewhat unexpected when we consider that in the previous year 22 young people had come to christ One would think the conversion of 22 young people would have encouraged this pastor for some time, but it seems discouragement was soon to set in. Perhaps there is an indication of why in another church book there were two principal books that Bedham kept in the church. One recounting kind of a a history and a, a narrative and one recounting more statistical data. In this other church book, Containing the minutes, Bedham records that in the years since the writing of that annual letter, when he bemoaned difficult days, right around the time 22 young people had come to Christ, in that year prior, five people in the church had passed away. The first, Sister Hag, having passed away and been buried while Bedham was attending the 1754 annual meeting at Warwick. Furthermore, he had buried the last three in the weeks just prior to writing the 1755 letter. Bedham was, after all, a shepherd who loved his sheep and his affection for them and his sorrow at their passing would be difficult to contain. It can be clearly seen that Bedham was no stranger to the stirrings, though, of revival. The waters of the Windrush Creek running through the middle of the city were often disturbed or the baptisms of the Baptists. Haken speculates that it seems he is on good footing to do and it seems he is on good footing to do so, saying, It may well have been this taste of revival that helped make Bedham a cordial friend of those who were involved in the evangelical awakenings of the mid-18th century. Well, to the consideration of those evangelical intimations. We now turn Bedham's Relations with Revival Evangelicals. Bedham may, as Robert Hall has noted, have lived out his life in village retirement, but in seclusion he was not. Bedham both knew and was known. Bedham was keenly aware of the evangelical leaders of the day, and they were aware of him as well. And though it is true that Bedham was well acquainted with evangelical leaders in the particular Baptist community, men like John Colette Ryan, John Ash, Hugh and Caleb Evans, Benjamin Francis, John Sutcliffe, William Carey, Samuel Pierce, Andrew Fuller, all of these were contemporaries and friends. It is from the broader dissenting community that we would like to draw an illustration of his revival connections. In a letter to a Mr. S, I'm not sure who Mr. S is at the moment, but in a letter to a Mr. S of Gloucestershire, dated June 21, 1743, George Whitfield, a name you may have heard, writes the following in a postscript relating to a dissenting minister, a Mr. Cole. He writes to Mr. S, I was always taught to ridicule Mr. Cole. And with shame, I write it. I used to, when I was a boy, I would run into his meeting house and cry, Old Cole, Old Cole, Old Cole. Being asked once by one of his congregation what business I would be of, I said, Well, I want to be a minister, Whitfield said. But I would take care never to tell stories from the pulpit like Old Cole. About 12 years afterwards, The old man heard me preach, Whitfield says, in one of the churches in Gloucestershire. And on my telling some story to illustrate the subject I was upon, having been informed what I had said before, he made this remark to one of his elders, I find that young Whitfield can now tell stories as well as old Cole. (laughs) Well, it must be noted here that Whitfield gives this account with shame. His views of Cole obviously had changed coming to regard him as a, quote, most venerable dissenting minister. Thomas Cole, 1679 to 1742, was the dissenting minister in Gloucestershire from 1718 till his death in 1742. There he served his flock for a quarter of a century with awakening ministrations from the word of God. Cole was so taken with the ministerial labors of Whitfield that, as Whitfield tells the story, he used to subscribe himself my curate and went about preaching after me in the country from place to place. Interestingly, it would seem that there were times that Whitfield would follow Cole, who would frequently preach on an old tump, which is a small mound of dirt raised in a field in the Minchinhampton Common just a couple of miles outside the Gloucestershire village of Thrupp. This tump is still there today. You can go see where Thomas Cole preached. Thomas Hall, who preached Cole's funeral, noted that he was among those who approved themselves to be able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter but of the Spirit, workmen that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, Cole's worth as an evangelical minister is too much to recount at this point. It is, though, this minister's intersection with Benjamin Bedham that must be our focus at the present. In 1768, Benjamin Bedham was associated with a group of ten ministers, each of whom had a personal and intimate acquaintance with Cole. These men were sought out to put their hand to a broadsheet in honor of Cole, the header of this broadsheet, which read, A modern pattern for gospel ministers, taken verbatim from an inscription upon the gravestone of the late truly Reverend Mr. Thomas Cole, whose remains lie interred at the meeting house without the south gate in the city of Gloucestershire. The broadsheet records that Cole was, quote, very eloquent, informing, awakening, evangelical, and casistical, laboring much to abase the sinner and exalt Christ and free grace, end quote. Bedham's being asked to put his hand to this document helpfully connects Bedham with the broader evangelical community. Additionally, Bedham was here grouped with a significant company in putting their names To this manifesto, men such as the independent ministers William King, Samuel Phillips, William Adams, William Gardner, and Samuel Ball, and George Gibbs, as well as particular Baptists Philip Jones and Hugh Evans of the Bristol Academy and the Broadmead Church. Last on the list, an Anglican by the name of George Whitfield, whose intimacy with Cole was already clearly portrayed. Jeffrey Nuttall notes that an examination of the names reveals frequent association of these ten men with Whitfield as well as with Cole. It is important to keep in mind here that Bedham, as well as all those who were listed, would have had to become acquainted with Cole prior to 1742 when he died. This means that from early on in Bedham's ministry at Borton, even prior to his ordination, Bedham was intimately aware of this man who was instrumental in the preaching of the gospel in the early days of the evangelical revival. To note Haken again, he says, it is this kind of cordial relation that placed Bedham in the path of the revival early on in his labors. I'd love to take the time, and I don't have the time to do this, but I'll just say quickly, Bedham was not only concerned with the work of the Lord in the evangelical revival in Britain, Bedham was also very concerned with what we often refer to as the Great Awakening. It's kind of the uh, Americanized version of the evangelical revival. He was intimately aware of uh, churches in America. He has pages of statistics of the records of conversions of people in America. He has a hand-copied letter from uh, Isaac Bacchus uh, that was given to another minister very near him, and that would go on for several pages, so we won't go into that, but it's an amazing story to think that here was a man in the midst of the 18th century who had all this statistical data on what was going on in the colonies. You know, no, no Google... <laughs> uh, know any of that, and uh, he is is very abreast and very interested in what's happening in America. I want us to consider another angle on Bedham's evangelicalism, and that is his moderate understanding of conversion. It was preachers of the Great Awakening in the American colonies, of which the evangelical revival in England was connected, who first articulated a view of conversion— a view that was shared generally by all holding a moderating evangelicalism like Bedham. At this point, we would consider Bedham's view of conversion. There is a need, first though, to set out an understanding of what is often termed moderate evangelicalism or a moderate evangelical view of conversion itself. And this will then serve as a backdrop against which to set Bedham. So a moderate evangelical view of conversion. Well, in his work on the Great Awakening, historian Thomas Kidd, contemporary historian Thomas Kidd, draws attention to the fact that both the role of the Holy Spirit and the methods of revival were hotly contested among early American evangelicals. And this dispute led to the breakup of evangelicals along a continuum stretching from those who were supposed to opposed to the revival, to those who were highly in favor of it. The groupings along Kid's continuum held three distinct positions, the anti-revivalists, the moderate evangelicals, and the radical evangelicals. The anti-revivalists, as their name suggests, were against the revival, viewing it as the work of enthusiasts. At the other end of the spectrum were the radical evangelicals who were in favor of the awakening in all of its various forms, embracing the spirit's movements, even if social conventions had to be sacrificed. Moderating these two more extreme positions were the moderate evangelicals, making up the bulk of the movement as the revival progressed. Though they shared some concerns with the anti-revivalists regarding the excesses of the radicals, they were of the conviction that though aberrations were present, they did not discount the awakening's validity. Robert Caldwell, in his work, The Theology of American Revivalists, provides a breakdown of the theology of the moderates, especially in relation to their theology of salvation. Having culled a vast amount of material from the period, Caldwell has concluded from The primary sources that the principal components of their soteriology can best be summarized by a threefold designation, conviction, conversion, and consolation. Although nicely alliterated, Caldwell did not invent the threefold descriptor, rather it is so itemized in the primary material itself. These, conviction, conversion, consolation, are, according to various 18th century witnesses, a judicious description of the distinct parts of the ordinary work of the Spirit of grace in applying the redemption purchased by Christ to particular souls. In each successive portion of this conversion rubric, Caldwell adds several distinguishing particulars clarifying the fullness of each element. He explains this way, The process begins with the conviction of sin, where individuals come to a convincing and humbling sense of their sin, guilt, and impotency, and are driven to despair of help from any refuges refuges of their own. Through prayer, seeking God, and utilizing the means of grace, sinners wait for God's work of regenerating grace. The second step, conversion, commences with a moment of spiritual illumination, where the convinced sinner sees that Christ is an all sufficient Savior able to save them to the utmost that come unto God by him. This discovery emboldens the individual to venture forth forth in repentance and faith on Christ. The third part, consolation, comprises the young Christian's pursuit of spiritual maturity through the quest for assurance of salvation. So important was this rubric that historian C.C. Goen noted that the three stages of conversion became normative in the Great Awakening And in subsequent revivalism, and those who could not or would not pass through it, were in time denounced as unconverted. Well, this provides a sound backdrop necessary to move forward, looking more particularly at Benjamin Bedham. An evangelical of moderate convictions, notably here in relation to the doctrine of conversion. Bedham's convictions regarding conversion can be seen in a perusal of the church book where he recounts numerous conversion narratives given by those seeking membership in the Borton congregation. Whenever one in the Borton congregation came to faith in Christ, they would relate their own experience. And they would do this verbally before the church, before being admitted. Presently, the experiences of three individuals with brief analysis are considered in relation to that rubric. Mary Boswell, Elizabeth Bedham, and Betsy Head. Mary Boswell's experience is related in the church book dated August 25th, 1754. In the evening of the same day, Miss Molly Boswell gave in her experience and was accepted. She was under concern of mine nine or ten years ago. Mr. Bedham, preaching from these words, quote, he answered not a word, end quote. Put her upon the duty of prayer in which she rested till those words were impressed on her mind. Our righteousnesses are but as filthy rags. She then was in great distress again until Mr. Mr. Bedham preached from, look unto me and be ye saved, which led her to the Lord Jesus Christ. She has been much in carnal frame since that time till of late when God has remarkably quickened her soul through the preaching of the word. Reading and prayer have been wonderfully sweet. One night she was filled with such comfort when a led as to be ready to break out, my soul shall magnify the Lord. And as she said, she could not help applying that to herself. One morning she had been earnestly praying, Lord, blot out my iniquities as a cloud. Some hours after these words, I will blot out. They were powerfully and comfortably impressed upon her soul. Now assessing Molly Boswell against Caldwell's conversion rubric works well. Bedham recounts first her conviction falling within two periods of time somewhat separated. Whereby the use of means of preaching, she was under concern of mind as well as great distress. Bedham then points to her conversion, indicating that God remarkably quickened her soul through the preaching of the word, and this brought her consolation, where now reading and prayer had been wonderfully sweet to her, and she had now been filled with comfort. The words of scripture were then at times comfortably impressed upon her soul. We'll skip Betsy Head, but I do want to recount Elizabeth Bedham, and yes, the name ought to catch your attention. October the 6th, 1754. Mrs. Bedham was by a sermon preached by her husband. From these words, I hate vain thoughts. First brought to see those things to be sin, which she never thought of so before. She had large discoveries of the plagues of her own heart. Was brought to think as she expressed it after Christ found an alteration in the bent of her soul toward God and divine things. These words had been peculiarly comfortable, she says. The blood of Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. And under her conviction of sins of youth, which she had not thought of for years, were brought to remembrance. She was particularly touched with a sense of her ingratitude to God. How striking it must have been. For Bedham to recount in the church book the narrative of his own wife's conversion under his preaching. Elizabeth Bedham was confronted by her previously unrecognized sin through the preaching of Benjamin Bedham. Bedham describes her conviction point to its large discoveries of the plagues of her own heart. Betham then points to her turning or being converted as an alteration in the bent of her soul toward God and divine things. And following this reorientation of her affections toward Christ, she is brought to a point of comfort again through the word which had previously brought conviction. Well, Betsy Head will have to live on unknown, at least for the time. Against this evangelical rubric of conviction, conversion, comfort, each of these conversion narratives fits well. Many more could have been used as Bedham was faithful to provide numerous accounts in the church book. Reading each one of them was a joy. Bedham was faithful to provide account after account after account. Each serves well in presenting the evangelical convictions of our brother in relation to 18th century moderate evangelical views. Bedham's usefulness in the Midland Baptist Association. Bedham's usefulness and his concern for the souls of others in the surrounding area outside of Borton and in the broader context of the Midland Association was well known. W.T. Whitley, Baptist historian, notes that Bedham's influence on the Midland Association was extensive and his influence in the surrounding villages was intensive. By intensive, Whitley stresses the exhaustive and thorough work of Bedham in his over five decades of ministry in Borton and in the surrounding area. Whitley adds that Bedham won converts from over 20 parishes and many new churches arose From his labors. Well, with this far reaching ministry in mind, Gary Brady, an avid student of Bedham from London, notes that Borton became something of a preaching center. That this effective evangelistic ministry of Bedham was not unnoticed by those around him is made abundantly evident when consideration is given to Bedham's labors and his reputation among those who he shared fellowship with in the Midland Baptist Association. What can be said of the Midland Association and of Bedham's connection with it? Well, these questions are examined in what follows, seeking to further verify Bedham's evangelical convictions, here seen in his association with like-minded brethren with which he held communion. An evangelical communion of Baptists in the Midlands. The second London Confession of Faith... The Confession of the Midland Association, in its article on the church, states in part that churches, when planted by the providence of God so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Important to note here is that churches of the same faith and order should hold communion among themselves. Communion was the term chosen to express their formal association, which was to serve the intended purpose of establishing them together in peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. This communion was held and practiced by the churches connected together in the Midlands. Mention must be made at this point of a comment by Samuel Pierce Carey who once declared that the Midland Association in the latter part of the 18th century was sedate. Speaking of a fundraising effort of two brothers on behalf of the newly formed Baptist Missionary Society in 1742, Carey writes these words. Young, Edmonds, and Pierce were the boanerges of the Birmingham Baptists. They changed the tone of the Midlands Association. Pierce found there the aged Bedham, with 47 years of rural ministry behind him, William Dore, with 15 years at Sinchester, Lawrence Butterworth of Evesham with 26 years, and James Butterworth of Broomsgrove with 35. These men of the old school were strangers to the evangelistic spirit which was soon to breathe upon the land. The lamps of their churches were burning brightly, but only for those within the house." No light gleamed forth across the outer dark. Edmonds and Pierce not only unshuttered and discurtained the windows, but carried their torches into the surrounding gloom. They disturbed the association's sedateness. Well, according to Carey, Samuel Pierce and Edward Edmonds, two ministers in the area at the time, found the aged Bedham upon their arrival. And also, along with Bedham, they found William Doerr and Lawrence and James Butterworth. They, along with Bedham, apparently lacked an evangelistic spirit. What is to be made of Carey's accusation? These men, these men mentioned together in this statement by Samuel Pierce Carey, had long and fruitful ministries in their respective villages in the association at large, The ministries of all three men could readily be considered, and such would yield good cause for assessing them differently than did Carey. However, consider simply one, the brother of James Butterworth, Lawrence, who had all in all a 60-year pastorate in Evesham, particular Baptist church, from 1768 to 1828, and was considered a truly venerable servant of Jesus Christ. Lawrence once wrote this to a friend. Regarding John 3.16, he says, That passage deserves to be printed in golden letters, yea, to be printed on our hearts where it is said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever, he says, mark the word, whosoever, let our case be what it may. I mean, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think he was the Arminian mission guy standing at the back of the goalpost at the football game. But he wasn't. He was a particular Baptist that had a hunger for lost men to come to Christ. Placing stress on the scriptural availability of the gospel to whosoever is hardly the emphasis of a high or hyper-Calvinist or one who had no evangelistic spirit. But it is not simply individual men who were being slanderously spoken of in Carey's statement. He speaks most pejoratively of the entirety of the Midland Association of Churches. Carey states that Pierce and Edmonds changed the tone of the Midland Association. His negative assessment of the Association itself goes further stating that upon arrival they disturbed the Association's sedateness. But is that correct? Is that a correct representation of this association of our brothers from years ago? What, in fact, was the tone of the Midland Baptists? Perhaps you can sympathize with being misrepresented. Surely no one would ever do that regarding your Calvinism. The Midland churches were widely known for their confessional soundness, their evangelical fervor and spiritual affection. The association was one of the oldest in Baptist life, first formed back in 1655, but later reformed in 1690, taking as its doctrinal basis the 1689 Confession. The association had a rich evangelical Calvinistic heritage, with John Bedham, Benjamin's father, and Bernard Fosket, Benjamin's tutor at the Bristol Academy both pastoring in the confines of the Midland Association in the early part of the century. Their story is amazing, but not for today. One of the surest ways of ascertaining the heart of an association is through its annual circular letters. Fortunately, in Bedham's books, Bedham copied several circular letters for us. And examining these along with others obtained is quite revealing as to the true tone of the association during Bedham's ministry. A sampling from various years will serve to refute Carey's charges and establish the evangelical position of the association as a whole. 1751. A call in this letter went out to all the churches to strive for revival. This was deeply needed, for as they state, though they enjoy awakening means, they have hard and obdurate hearts that will not break nor soften. Interestingly, this year, Bedham wrote in his church's letter to the association that they as a congregation were longing for the latter reign to be brought by the Lord to the churches. The latter reign in 18th century parlance is this idea it's indicative of that latter day glory that they hoped would be falling on the churches very soon it's what gave impetus to the writings of men like edwards and interestingly john gill in the period but that's another story too 1754 this particular circular letter stresses or expresses cause for sorrow that the word had not been made so effectual as we could wish in the conversion of sinners Helpfully, this year, Bedham preached the annual sermon on Matthew 4.19 on being fishers of men. And the association embraced his message and offered the following exhortation. The churches in this association, being without settled pastors or ministers, there being also a want of laborers and other parts of the harvest, we think there is a need of prayer on this account to entreat the Lord that he would be pleased to make many of his servants fishers of men. We entreat you to pray earnestly for your ministers that God would both increase their graces and their labors. I'm sure someone who gave the morning devotional that day probably encouraged people to pray for these kinds of things. 1755. This letter contains the affirmation that they see themselves in the bonds of an evangelical friendship which will grow stronger and stronger to all eternity. 1757 this year seeming to take a note from the post-millennial eschatology of Edwards, they wrote that quote, the state of the churches is far short of that happy period which the predictions of God's infallible word gives us abundant and joyful reason to expect they were hoping for things to happen, they were expecting things to happen, long before William Carey ever supposedly said attempt great things, expect great things, or expect great things, attempt great things, whichever way you want to put it they were already what? They were already expecting great things and they were attempting great things here through prayer. 1767. This year the association admonished the churches, "We desire that prayer meetings may be carefully attended and in a special manner we com- we, we comment that's how it says it comment. We comment to the churches of this association, the spending an hour or an hour and a half in prayer every Friday evening beginning at seven o'clock for the revival of God's work and pouring down of his spirit on the churches, especially the associated ones. 1773, this year the association gave a book recommendation. That sounds good. Book provision. I don't know who did that with the books, but thank you. That's wonderful. That's not in the notes. Anyway, so In a footnote in their letter, they include the following advice. To assist your faith in some controverted points of great importance, we recommend the diligent perusal of a small tract entitled An Address to the Serious and Candid Professors of Christianity. At the end of the letter, in what they called the Breviates, they included the following statement again about the book. Agreed that the messengers present... Or the, that, the mes- that the messengers present their sincerest thanks to the author of the address to the serious and candid professors of Christianity for his noble and able defense of some of the fundamental doctrines of religion and sincerely with his labors may be crowned with success. Now this tract was written by none other than the evangelical Calvinist Caleb Evans of Bristol founder of the Bristol Education Society in 1770 and tutor at the Bristol Baptist Academy alongside his father, Hugh Evans. Now, it should be noted that this expression of thanks expressed for Evans was encouraged by the Borton Church, who included as a postscript in their letter that year to the association the following, we think we should, as a body, that is the association, return thanks to the Reverend Mr. Caleb Evans for his late, seasonable, and ingenious address in the defense of the fundamental doctrines of the gospel. Noteworthy is that this book addresses evangelical gospel issues such as distinctions between, here, natural ability and moral inability. Now, there's not time to go into that, but these distinctions were later used in the 18th century by Andrew Fuller in the writing of the book, the gospel worthy of all acceptation, which was a key theological resource in the birth of modern missions through the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society. 1786, this year the Midland Association joined the prayer call issued in 1784 by the Northamptonshire Association. 1784, John Sutcliffe had issued a call to prayer, calling upon the churches to pray once a month for the propagation of the gospel into the foreign lands. And here the Midland Association is joining with this. One final record from their letters in 1789. Here is an adequate summary of a very long letter of ten printed pages. Extolling the necessity of true Christian experience consists in feeling the power of divine truth upon the heart. Experiencing deep conviction for sin and having the affections weaned from this vain and transitory life. This entire letter reads like a track in defense of the evangelicalism of the revival. This year also, the association agreed to continue the monthly meeting of prayer for the revival of religion. Recall, we just read about a weekly call to prayer in 1767. But this is the monthly call to prayer that they should continue, and this is most likely the call to prayer two years prior, um, or, excuse me, Five years prior in 1784 uh, that the Midland Association had joined in 1786 for the prayer of the revival of religion among the nations. Now, this communion of churches was far from being sedate. Rather, they were bursting forth with the hope that God would soon breathe upon his churches with a fresh work of the Spirit, and in the meantime, they were being faithful to the work at hand. When Pierce and Edmonds came upon the Midland Association, they found the windows of with curtains pulled and shutters opened in the hope that God would soon move upon the land. The association was far from sedate. Carrie was wrong. But not only the association, we need to consider Bedham himself an evangelical man in this association among evangelical men. Bedham was deeply connected to this association and held in high regard by its pastors the church books give the picture of a man devoted to the work of his association. Bedham would, have been com- Bedham would have seen commitment to associationalism in the labor of his father at the Alchester and Pithy churches, as well as in the efforts of Bernard Foskett through the Broadmead Baptist Church in Bristol, especially during the days that he spent there at the academy. For almost 50 years, Bedham, almost without fail, wrote his church's associational letter and was their appointed representative at the annual assembly. On 17 different occasions, he preached the annual sermons and served as moderator at least five different times. Well, let me quickly move to a, another point of evidence here. Bedham's calling out of able ministers. The Apostle Paul had clearly passed along a ministerial directive to Timothy and those who would come after him when he instructed him in Timothy 2, 2, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Clearly, Bedham saw his role in a text such as this. Bedham, who had been faithfully taught by others the word of God, would embrace throughout his ministry the training of men in the things he himself had been given. A variety of men were brought up and called out under his ministry in the tradition of Evans's able ministers in the Bristol tradition. The names of some are well known in Baptist history and others are more obscure. John Collette Ryland, Richard Haynes, John Reynolds, Richard Strains, Alexander Payne, and Thomas Coles. Not the Thomas Cole of earlier. Each of these men would make a worthy study men whom Bedham shepherded and trained, but attention is drawn at this point to one man by the name of Nathaniel Rollins. Nathaniel Rollins, called out to the ministry while under the pastoral care of Bedham, serves as a model example of one able minister calling out another. Seeing Bedham's work with Rollins furthers this lecture's demonstration of Bedham's evangelical commitments. Nathaniel Rawlins of the little village Morton in the Marsh. I love the names of towns over there. Borton on the Water, Morton in the Marsh, and just all kinds of little funny things. They laugh at them too, so it's just kind of, it's just kind of humorous. <clears throat> Nathaniel Rawlins came to Borton on the Water sometime, uh, it would seem, in the early 1740s. The year of 1750 is significant for, uh, for Borton when, when it came to men that they would send into the ministry. That year, the Borton Church book recounts that they dismissed Brother John Ryland to the church at Warwick, and Brother Richard Haynes to that of Bradford, over which churches they are since settled as pastors. The departure of men from our churches to the ministry is a bittersweet experience in the life of a congregation. The loss of gifted brethren to another congregation is difficult, yet at the same time, a rewarding experience for a pastor and flock. The church in Borton certainly would have felt the loss and the joy of seeing these two brothers sent out from their midst. However, unknown to them at the time, just, short, <coughs> excuse me, just a short way down the road, in that same year, a young man who had been serious from a child, Nathaniel Rollins, son to brother and sister Rollins in Morton and Marsh, would come for baptism and was received into membership. It is recorded in the other church book that he was baptized March twenty fourth, and received in on the twenty fifth in seventeen fifty. The rich treasure Bedham and his congregation would find in this young man was yet to be seen. The Baptists of the day, or the Baptists of the day, saw able ministers as naturally endowed, intellectually prepared, spiritually gifted. And gospel preaching. Rollins fits well when measured against such a rubric. Rollins saw, or Rollins sat, rather, excuse me, under the pastoral ministry of Bedham for the next 10 years or more. And during this time, the church soon requested him to preach and engaged in a long solicitation, and finally he yielded to this trial of his abilities. The church must have seen something promising in the young man for he was sent to the Bristol Academy where he remained four years under the tutelage of the Reverend Hugh Evans and the Reverend Bernard Foskett. Bedham notes in the church book again that toward the beginning of the year 1763, while still under Evans' care at the academy, Rollins returned to Borton to have his gifts tested in private manner three times. I want you to note the patience ...of this young man in waiting to be sent out to the ministry. Oh, for such a young man to be patient. The church could not come to a conclusion regarding his gifts. And Rollins returned to the academy to complete his education. In September of the same year, Bedham received correspondence from Hugh Evans... ...stating that they had had Rollins preach once... ...and he had met with acceptance... And that, a few times under urgent necessity, he had preached in a few area churches. Evans was desirous of the Borton Church's approval that, that the Broadmead Church might give him liberty to exercise occasionally where there was a pressing call. I mean, here we have an example of another church respecting the home church's approval of a man. Everybody's wanting to wait on one another. What, what grace, what camaraderie, what an association. To this, the church agreed, and Rollins was then given the opportunity on occasion to preach freely. At this point, Rollins had been intellectually prepared at both Borton and Bristol and recognized as naturally and spiritually gifted for the work. Regarding his natural abilities, the church had taken notice of his good natural parts in 1762. The following is a recollection from the Baptist magazine of the period. A remarkable integrity of character, this is in regard to Rollins, a remarkable integrity of character, united with great plainness of manner, sometimes failed to introduce Mr. Rollins advantageously to the attention of a stranger, but gave him an honorable seat in the circle of friendship. There it was known how much the law of kindness governed his heart. And there, breaking through his natural reserve, it was expressed by the appropriate communications of the tongue, ministering grace to the hearers. Though he had a natural reserve about him, Rollins made up for it with his ability to communicate his personal integrity and the kindness that governed his heart. Isn't it interesting that God calls different men of different temperaments into the ministry? You know, the danger of thinking they have to be just like me or they can never preach. May God keep them from being just like me. One's enough. Rollins was well on his way to be recognized as an able minister of the New Testament. He's still on the way. One point of recognition remained, and that would be fulfilled back in Borton. Upon completion of his education, Nathaniel returns to Borton and places himself again under the pastoral ministry of Betham. January 14, 1766, the congregation at Borton, quote, kept a day of fasting and prayer when Brother Nathaniel Rollins was unanimously called out to the work Of the ministry, now the work of the ministry for particular Baptists in those days is the work of preaching the gospel. This is made clear when, the following meeting, Benjamin Bedham insisted or issued to Nathaniel Rollins an official preaching certificate certifying that he had been quote unanimously called out to preach the everlasting gospel wherever the providence of God shall lead him, and in this act the church. Now, as a whole congregation led by their pastor, affirmed that Rollins was a man of sufficient ability and gift, prepared and ready to go out and preach the gospel of Christ wherever the Lord may lead him. What a, what a precious story in my own heart and mind just thinking about men called to the ministry. May God give us such young men in our churches, humble, passionate for the things of Christ. One last point of evidence, and this will complete our our look at Bedham here, and that is Bedham and his relationship to the Baptist Missionary Society. This is one final piece of evidence lending uh, to our support of his presentation of, of Bedham as an evangelical minister of the period. But it's an interesting piece of evidence because it seems at first to kind of go in a contradictory direction. When the Baptist Missionary Society was formed in 1792, seeking to send William Carey to India along with John Thomas, the responses of all in the particular Baptist community were not encouraging. Many, in fact, were negative, and sometimes verbally so, or as in the case of some, like here with Bedham, a negative response is found in writing. Andrew Fuller's son, Andrew Gunton Fuller, noted that Bedham was among a group of those who withheld their sanction. And though at first including uh, this argument in Bedham's favor, again, may seem to undo everything that we've done so far, such a conclusion, I believe, would be premature. It should be recalled that Andrew Fuller himself was hard to sell on the society's formation. Raymond Brown recounts how Carey won men over with patience. Fuller tells how Carey's plan, Brown says, to take the Christian message to other nations was first regarded as wild, impractical, a scheme that few would offer him any encouragement. Yet he would not give it up, but talked with us, Fuller says, one by one till he made some sound impression. He went on thinking, reading, talking, praying for about seven years until a group of formerly apprehensive men felt ready. Bedham was not alone in his opposition. However, to suppose from this opposition that all opposed were high Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists would be to say too much and to put too great a limit on men's motivations, which are various in their theological position. In other words, people, people are moved By a variety of things, and we don't always know why they're opposing something. Well, Andrew Gunton Fuller wrote in his father's memoirs that it must not be supposed that even after the institution of the BMS and the embarkation of its first missionaries, the project met with very general support, or even that those who withheld their sanction were all men either of narrow minds or hyper-Calvinist tendencies. One of those who withheld their sanction, and on the mind of Fuller, was Bedham himself. Fuller even offers praise in this same letter, in the same paragraph, the same context, praises Bedham as being one of the most distinguished and valuable ministers of his time. He offers the excuse for those in opposition that the subject was applied to the case of modern Christianity. It was new to them. I mean, nobody had done this. They'd never heard of this idea. Go to India? You must be kidding Fuller understood the idea of a society to carry the gospel all the way to India as new, and new could often create uncertainties. Fuller was led to excuse Bedham in this matter because he knows firsthand that Bedham's motivations are not due to his high Calvinism, but were made clear in a letter which Bedham had written his father Andrew Fuller. I must say, when I heard that Bedham opposed the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, I was already some way into my study of Bedham and was like already convinced he was an evangelical. And then I heard about this letter and I thought, it's like undoes everything. And, but I just heard about the letter. I kept going. Finally I found the letter. And um, the letter explains Bedham's motivations. Bedham had written Fuller Bedham had written Fuller in 1793 in response to a letter that Andrew Fuller had written him stating that Fuller wanted to come to Borton to raise funds for the Baptist Missionary Society. Bedham's letter falls into three parts. Initial greetings followed by Bedham putting Fuller off until the following summer at which time he'd be able to raise more money since Borton was having some difficulties and a final section where Bedham expresses to Fuller his hesitations regarding the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society and the sending of Kerry to India. It is the last section that is of concern here. This is what that final paragraph reads. To conclude, for I begin to be very much afraid, I think, that your scheme, considering the paucity of well-qualified ministers, hath a very unfavorable aspect with respect to destitute churches at home where charity ought to begin. I had the pleasure once to see and hear Mr. Carey. It struck me that he was the most suitable person in the kingdom, at least who I knew to supply my place and make up my great deficiencies when either disabled or removed. A different plan is formed and pursued, and I fear that the great and good man, though influenced by the most excellent motives, will meet with a disappointment, however God hath his ends, and whoever is disappointed he will not. He cannot be so. My unbelieving heart is ready to suggest with the Jews of old that the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. I have said, with, I have said all that my present state and body and mind will permit and therefore with sincere respects to Mrs. Wallace, if living and entreating a particular remembrance in your prayers, I subscribe your affectionate but much afflicted brother, Benjamin Bedham. If primary sources are to be sought in defense of Bedham's reasons for not supporting the BMS, one would be hard-pressed to find a source more primary than this. Here are the very words and the express motivations of Bedham himself. In examining Bedham's statements, five points are made regarding Bedham's motivations, each of which take the reader in a direction away from high Calvinism. First, Bedham expresses a deep concern for the churches at home, which he fears will be hurt in embarking on the BMS enterprise. Bedham writes, I think your scheme, considering the paucity of well-qualified ministers, hath a very unfavorable aspect with respect to destitute churches at home where charity ought to begin. Consider that nothing negative should be taken by the use of the word scheme. One might find a synonym in the word plan. Bedham does not mean to cast suspicion on the motives of those in positions of leadership in this new venture. He says as much as he moves forward in his thought. Also, it is the state of the churches and specifically the paucity or the scarcity of well-qualified preachers of the gospel for the benefit of the churches that causes Bedham great concern. These were indeed difficult times and many of the churches um, were pastorless. And that being of great concern led Bedham to think if we send all these good men overseas, what will become of our churches here? Note also that Bedham is not to be taken here as seeking to exonerate his guilty conscience for not helping those in the nations, as Pierce Carey said, that they were in the outer dark, when he states that charity first should be dealt out to those at home. Rather, he is expressing the deeper responsibility he feels they first have to the churches in England. Second, Bedham's motivations can also be found closer to home, closer that is to the situation at Borton-on-the-Water. Bedham by this time has begun his sixth decade of pastoral labor for this village flock. His health is not well. In fact, he dies just a year and a half after he writes this letter. Um, He has been in recent years, he expresses in the first portion of the letter, being carried in a sedan to occupy the pulpit every Lord's Day. They'd go to his house, pick him up in a carrier, carry him to the church, set him up, have him preach, carry him back home. If you've heard the story of Calvin in many years, in later years of his life, they did the same thing. They just carried him, propped him up, and put him, he preached, and they carry him back home. Here he turns his attention to the soon coming need for a replacement for him in relation to his pastoral duties, and his thoughts turn to none other than William Carey. He writes, I had the pleasure once of, to see and hear Carey. It struck me that he was the most suitable person in the kingdom, at least who I knew to supply my place and make up my, different, my deficiencies when either disabled or removed. Now, this is a surprising thing. If, in fact, Bedham is a high Calvinist, why would he possibly consider William Carey to be the best, most suitable replacement for him in the kingdom? Carey, Bedham thought, was the best man for the job in Borton. Third. Bedham further gives positive affirmation of Carey's motivations in the formation of the society itself. Bedham states a different plan is formed and pursued, and I fear that the great and good man, though influenced by the most excellent motives, will meet with a disappointment. Though Bedham saw Carey as the great and good man, he does not think the Baptist Missionary Society will meet, or he does think the Baptist Missionary Society will meet with disappointment. Though this is the case, he yet affirms the men behind it, Even though he clearly believes this venture will meet with disappointment, he points Fuller to his God in the next statement. Notice this phrase. However, God hath his ends, and whoever is disappointed, he will not. Indeed, he cannot be so. God's purpose will prevail. Of this, Bedham and Fuller were agreed, and they were sure. Fourth, I said five, there are just four. That's to encourage you. Bedham is not opposed. Bedham is not opposed to the idea of reaching the nations. Bedham's words express both his humility and his hope. He says, my unbelieving heart is ready to suggest that the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Though the time has not come in Bedham's thought, he implies there will come a time. Now, Bedham refers to this as the time of building the Lord's house. And he is alluding here to Haggai 1-2, where the prophet says the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Just prior to the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, Fuller had preached a sermon from this very text. Fuller's sermon was entitled, The Instances the evil nature, and the dangerous tendency of delay in the concerns of religion based on Haggai 1-2. Is Bedham perhaps alluding, not merely to the text from Haggai, but to Fuller's own sermon? Bedham would have had access to the sermon, which had been preached over two years prior in 1791. Either way, the issue between men like Bedham and Fuller had nothing to do with priority or propriety, but it had everything to do with timing. Both good men were gospel men. They were both free gospel men. Men who sensed and lived under obligation to preach the gospel, offer Christ to all, and press upon them their unmistakable duty to believe. Bedham's whole life pointed in a gospel direction. And on his death, as recorded in the Borton Church book, it is said, that his was a life of faithful labors and unblemished character and useful services both to saints and sinners. Referring to himself in the closing hours of his life as a brand plucked out of the burning, he fell asleep in Jesus. Thank you.